Welcome to Climate on Air, discussing the future of EU climate policy. I'm Bradley Martsagala from the University of Eastern Finland's Center for Climate Change, Energy and Environmental Law. And I'm Aaron Best, Senior Fellow at Ecologic Institute in Berlin. Today we're talking about a very important topic for the future of Europe, the role of innovation in making the EU climate neutral. Today, we have two innovation and climate policy experts in the studio with us. Brendan Moore from the Freie University Brussels and Harm Rings from Wageningen University in Research. They are both postdoctoral researchers working on themes related to climate governance and innovation. Thanks for having us. Hi, listeners. Uh, thanks for having us. Great to be here. Bradley and Aaron, I'm looking forward to this talk. Before diving into our detailed discussion, I'd like to ask you, why do you think it's important to talk about the role of innovation in climate policy in the first place? Why should we dedicate an entire episode for it? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think in our daily lives, we use a lot of technologies. Many of these technologies emit greenhouse gases, be it directly as with driving cars or heating our home or indirectly, for instance, in order to produce a good or transport it. And I guess in order to reach climate neutrality, many of these technologies must be exnovated or they must be phased out and replaced by other technologies. And in this replacing or developing and using of new technologies is where innovation comes in. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the key things to talk about just off the bat is the EU now has a very ambitious greenhouse gas reduction goal for 2050. Climate neutrality is actually a very transformational pathway to put yourself on. So I think to get to that ambitious goal, you have technologies that already exist that are market ready, that are already cheap enough to be used. So for example, lots of solar energy technologies, lots of wind energy technologies are already at the point where you can basically go out and use them today. But I think because the climate neutrality goal is so ambitious and you have to do it in quite a short amount of time, historically speaking, it's very important that we also need to invent new technologies that don't yet exist or that aren't yet market ready in order to go from where we are now into climate neutrality in 2050. In that context, innovation plays a key role because without innovation, I don't think right now it's possible to get to the climate neutrality target in 2050. So Harm, you mentioned a really interesting word, exnovation. Can you explain what that is for our listeners? It's just a very fancy word for phasing out of certain technologies. And what's nice is, of course, it's very complementary with innovation and they help one another and they can support one another. Although climate policy has been at the forefront of EU politics in recent years, I think we can all agree that there's still a lot to be done in order to reach climate neutrality by 2050. In addition to introducing new laws, we need to promote innovative solutions to move from incremental to transformative change. I think innovation is something that people intuitively understand, but you're experts in the topic. So let me just ask the really basic question. What are we talking about when we talk about innovation? Well, I think that's a, a really important question, of course. And if the basic answer is there's lots of definitions of innovation. When we were doing some of the research we've done in the past year or so, one study found 60 different definitions of innovation. And a lot of those are quite similar, but there's also differences. But I think in, a, in the very basic sense, innovation is turning an idea in someone's head or an idea in an organization into a new product, service, process, these types of things. It's that process of turning the idea into something new in the real world. And in 4i Traction, we've tried to simplify this definition of innovation by talking about three types of innovation. 
The first type of innovation is the innovation that you probably think of when someone says the word, and that's technological innovation. So this is innovation that actually creates new technologies, techniques, or combinations of those two that actually bring emissions down and move us toward climate neutrality. An example of this might be a cheaper type of solar power, a new type of battery for electric vehicles, or a new type of storing carbon dioxide, for example. That's the first definition. The second type of innovation we talk about is business model innovation. This is the idea that you don't just need new technologies to reach climate neutrality. You also need businesses and other organizations to change the way that they make a profit, that they go out and sell things. A good example of this business model innovation was actually in a case study that was recently completed by my colleague Thomas Wins for the 4i Traction Project. And in this case study, we actually found that you had maritime engineering companies in Belgium that were already quite good at doing those types of activities, shift their business model to get into the innovation ecosystem of offshore wind in Belgium. So this is innovation that isn't necessarily making a new product per se, but kind of shifting the way that businesses actually run. That's the second type of innovation we talk about. And the third type is actually policy and governance innovation. You don't just need a technological innovation. You don't just need changes in how businesses run. You also need innovation in the way that policy and governance is actually carried out. In the EU, for example, the carbon border adjustment mechanism that was recently agreed, this is a way to make companies that import into the EU pay a carbon price if they don't pay a carbon price in their home country. And so this rounds out the three definitions we have, technological, business model, and policy and governance innovation. Harm, turning to you, Brendan just mentioned three types of innovation. What can you add to that and maybe bring in that concept of exnovation as well? When you hear such an orderly list of types of innovation, it might not be immediately clear they are vital together to shift our economies to a new development pathway. We want to get to a new equilibrium state to leapfrog from one pathway to another one. And we hope that these different types of innovation will help together to solve a grand societal challenge, of course, namely climate change. Realizing a carbon-free economy is a huge challenge, and we really hope that the sum of these different types of innovation is sufficient to put our society on a new socio-economic development pathway. You mentioned leapfrogging. Tell us a bit more about that. What is that concept about? Basically, we want to go from one equilibrium to another equilibrium in this case. So we want to get to another development pathway. That's one way to describe leapfrogging. Coming back to basics and core messages, what kind of changes then do we actually need? So in the context of climate policy, what kinds of cases do we need innovation in and why? I guess that many of the innovations we need to mitigate climate change are already market ready, like solar panels, we have wind turbines, electric vehicles, but they need to be scaled up. So we simply need to buy and use these products much more often. For instance, buying an electric car, replacing coal power plants by wind parks, etc. I'm, of course, oversimplifying a bit and there are, of course, issues with this. Nonetheless, at the moment, a big part of the challenge is citizens and firms simply being willing and able to use these new green products. Absolutely. As I said before, I think it's very key to upscale things that we already have in hand. And it's also important to invent new ideas, new technologies, new business models where they don't exist already. So in some sectors, a lot of the climate mitigation or the decarbonization can happen through technologies that already exist an example here is electricity generation. We already have quite a number of technologies, 
solar power, wind power, these types of technologies that can replace fossil fuels or that can mitigate the emissions as well. But and then there's other sectors that are actually a bit more difficult to decarbonize. We call these the difficult to mitigate or difficult to abate sectors. These are things like steel, agriculture, cement. These are processes where actually you have certain ways of emitting greenhouse gases that are actually quite difficult to get rid of. For example, in the energy intensive industries like steel, you might try to use green hydrogen in part of the production process to reduce these emissions. But those technologies are really not at the scale. And in some cases, we don't have the exact technology that we need to do that yet. And that's where this kind of invention and demonstration at the early stages are key to make this work. Okay, so let's get into some of the harder innovation that needs to be done and some of the barriers and opportunities there. There are some things that are market ready, you mentioned, for upscaling, but let's focus on the harder to reach aspects. Do you think the state of innovation in the EU is sufficient for meeting this climate neutrality target that we have set for ourselves? I think the EU is doing at the EU level, but also at the member state level, quite a lot on climate change innovation. And the focus on funding has really increased over the past five to 10 years. For example, at the current time, the EU has agreed that 35% of its research and development funding under the Horizon Europe program will go toward climate change related activities. And in the EU budgets, 30% of funding will go toward climate-related activities. And a lot of that is toward innovation-related activities. That's really good. But we're talking about climate neutrality, and that's a very, very ambitious and therefore very difficult goal to meet by 2050. So getting to climate neutrality and keeping climate change below 1.5 degrees temperature rise or 2 degrees Celsius is actually a very challenging goal for everyone. And I think another important point to make is that it's not just about the EU, it's not just about the US, it's not just about China. Innovation is actually quite a global process. We found this example in the report of the Governmental Panel on Climate Change, the most recent report. And this is the organization that brings together the science on climate change, both in the natural sciences and the social sciences, and synthesizes what's out there. In the most recent IPCC report, they mentioned that the price of solar photovoltaic models has actually fallen by a factor of 10,000 since 1957. And just between the years 2008 and 2018, the price fell further 15 times. That is a very rapid drop, and that did not just happen in one place. It brought inventions from the US, it brought inventions from China, it brought inventions from Germany, Australia, Japan. It wasn't just one country or one innovation system that made this happen. But I think it's very important to both focus on the EU side, but also at the importance of the global level as well. That's fascinating that solar panels are 15 times cheaper in just a recent 10-year span. That's an amazing change. Could I add a bit to that? I think that municipalities are often an overlooked actor in innovation governance, but they can play also a crucial role in innovation. They are very close to the companies and the people, especially large municipalities also have some funding often available for innovation. And they can use, for instance, public tender for public charging infrastructure to incentivize firms to come up with innovative solutions. And I guess what is interesting there is that innovation is not a linear process. For instance, batteries, which were originally developed for electric vehicles, are now using in aviation as well. Some of these challenges look very difficult, how to fly without emitting carbon. The solutions can come from very unexpected corners. And I guess that unexpectedness makes innovation also a very interesting field to study. 
It's really interesting that innovation doesn't seem to be linear and that there's some really big challenges ahead, but there's also a lot of hope in the current technology and what's being done at municipal, international, and business levels. Something that you both mentioned earlier is the connection between all of them. So my understanding would be that innovations are not always coordinated, but may result in these happy coincidences. Would you agree with that? I guess that happy coincidences are definitely an element of that. And that's, of course, very difficult for states or governments to coordinate or to regulate. It's a part of the magic of innovation, I guess. But another aspect of it is, of course, that you can help that magic along a bit. You can help those magic coincidences along through instance, stimulating firms to share knowledge, etc. It's very difficult to coordinate such happy coincidences. On the other hand, you can stimulate it a bit as a government. And uh, you should definitely try to do that. Yeah, and I think building off what Harm said, in the EU, coordination is important because you do have the innovation systems of 27 member states plus the innovation system at the EU level. So I think there definitely needs to be some coordination there. And also coordination is important as much as possible internationally. So obviously under the UN framework on climate change, there's some coordination and some technology transfer, for example, between the developed countries and the developing countries. Coordination is important, but Competition can actually be quite desirable as well. And sometimes you can get quite a good race to the top in innovation. As a recent example, the U.S. government recently passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which has a lot of subsidies, a lot of plans for climate change related innovation. In response, there's been a lot of discussion in the European Union about whether they're actually doing it at the same level and how they respond. So there's talk of a sovereignty fund. There's talk of new legislation in the EU in order to respond to the innovation kickstart that happened in the US. And I think that can be a very positive development. I have a question for both of you. To unlock this climate innovation, we're going to need to address the biggest barriers and make use of the most important opportunities. So what are those biggest barriers and opportunities for innovation in the EU? Harm, let's start with you. Interesting question. Let me zoom out even a bit further. Why are governments at all involved in innovation? Why not let the market do its job? From economic theory, there are basically two reasons why innovation is undersupplied by the market and why governments might intervene in that. The first problem is that investments in innovation are too low because brown or carbon-based technologies do not reflect the costs of climate change. You can, of course, emit a lot of carbon and you don't internalize those costs as a firm. And because of that, these Costs are too low for these products. And because of that, cheaper and greener alternatives do not have a way to enter the market. And they're not even being developed because they would otherwise be too expensive. So negative externalities here is one reason why innovation is undersupplied. And another important problem is that firms do not internalize all the benefits of an innovation. The socially optimum amount of innovation is higher than that which firms actually provide. For instance, if a company invents a new energy-saving device, they will probably not internalize all the benefits of that. Maybe they can sell the product, but they also have generated knowledge, which can be used by other firms, etc. And because they only take in a relatively small share of the benefits of innovation, it's undersupplied by firms. And because of that, governments intervene. So that are basically the two great barriers we need to solve. Yeah, and I think that in addition to these kind of general theoretical challenges to innovation, 
There's also quite specific challenges in the EU context. There's a challenge in the fact that as compared to the United States, just as an example, which has a relatively similar size of economy, there's, for instance, quite a few barriers if you want to move your company from, say, Spain to Germany or Spain to Poland. There's linguistic barriers. There's sometimes policy barriers and these types of things. So for a long time, the EU has acknowledged that there's these challenges of fragmentation in the EU innovation landscape. And another part of this challenge is that you have some very large variations in how much money member states spend, for example, on research and development. According to Eurostat, in 2020, the EU spent about 2% of its GDP on research and development. That's the average, and it includes both the EU level and also the member states. But if you look at the member state level, you actually see these very wide variations. At the top of the scale, you see Belgium and Sweden, which spend about 3% of their GDP on research and development. And at the other end, you have Romania, which spends half a percentage point on research and development. Similarly, if you look at just the big member states, Germany spends 3%, while Italy spends half that at 1.5%. And this is definitely not pinpoint certain member states, just to show that there's this very wide range of funding levels in the member states. And that's a challenge if you want to, for instance, move a company from one of these member states to another, that also creates barrier. These are all kind of things that the EU has recognized for a very long time. And I think that's really where a lot of EU innovation policy aims to address these and build up a more European research area. So there seem to be a lot of challenges. and Indeed, they don't all seem to have the easiest of solutions. What can we do about them? How do we overcome these barriers? Well, there's a lot of ways, and I'll try to keep it short and just give a few examples. I think one way is funding at the parts of the innovation process where it's needed. In the innovation literature, there's a concept called the valley of death, and this is the gap between the part where you think of and then kind of prove that idea it works in principle, and then where you actually can get it to market. So you need to kind of have this ability to demonstrate that this idea, which works in principle, can actually be demonstrated and scaled up into the markets. And I think there's a real challenge because a lot of the early stage invention of blue sky thinking is done, for example, at research institutes, whereas a lot of the scaling up is done by businesses. And there's this kind of gap of funding in the middle where there's quite a lot of risk, for example, for a business to scale up something if it hasn't been proven. And a lot of times that's where governments, including the EU and member states, jump in. They say, okay, we'll provide some of the funding that we need to demonstrate that this works. Basically, we'll take on some of the risk in order to get this past that valley of death and hopefully out into the market. Or even if it's not out into the market, if it fails, that's also a very useful thing to know because then you know that it's not a pathway to invest more time and money in. And also innovation needs things like physical infrastructure and a lot of infrastructure funding, research infrastructure, but also just, for example, electric grids and the regulatory infrastructure, the regulatory support for these types of innovation activities. And so these are, I think, are some of the main points. Arm, maybe you have a couple more? Well, for instance, you have one model of innovation and it's called the technological innovation system model. And I think they have seven different obstacles to innovation. If you want to stimulate entrepreneur activities, you want to help entrepreneurs to innovate, you need to make sure that there is knowledge development and knowledge exchange. As a government, you can say, we want to go that way. There must be a market for the product, of course. People must be able to buy and sell it. So you can structure that market as a government, for instance. There must, of course, be sufficient resources for mobilization. It's not only financial resources, but also human resources and maybe some rare metals must be available for firms to buy and experiment with. 
And sometimes as a government, you can also help to create legitimacy and counteract resistance to change. For instance, you can help people to overcome their fear for new innovations. For instance, with electric cars, you can have some safety regulations to make sure that they don't catch fire, etc. And you can also help with legislation that supports innovation. So we have innovators that are ready to innovate. And Brendan, you mentioned some of the barriers that uh, need to be overcome, such as the valley of death, etc. And Harm, you mentioned these different conditions that need to be put in place. That naturally leads to questions about what policymakers can do to steer innovation. So what can they do specifically to ensure that innovation keeps going, that it happens at the right pace, it takes place in the right places? What are the levers that they can pull? Well, to really make sure that it happens at the right pace and the right places, that might be a bit too exact to really manage because there's always that happy coincidences which were already mentioned but of course you can try to stimulate the innovation system a government can do a lot of different things one thing we haven't mentioned enough yet is of course exnovation so uh, phasing out already existing technologies and then that in itself gives a huge incentive to innovate and develop new technologies of course universities are of course a big chunk in that they help and support original research. What the EU is doing very nicely at the moment, setting ambitious targets, where do we want to go as a society, and also providing funding in order to back that up a bit, so uh, providing uh, financial resources. The EU can, of course, also help with creating demand for products. That's a part of market formation, for instance, through public tenders making sure that when a government wants a new building or something, that it's a green building that uses new innovative products, new cement, etc. And of course, creating a good legislation that on the one hand, of course, does not hinder innovation so that there's no unnecessary red tape, but rather supports it. So innovation requires not only creativity, but facilitation. We've heard terms like research and development, and then the undefined appropriate funding and market-based incentives. What kind of policy instruments might be used to foster innovation practically at the EU level? In the 4i Traction Project, we've tried to divide up the instruments that you would talk about into three broad categories. The first category is instruments that are focused on specifically stimulating inventions. These are the creativity that you were talking about. The eureka moment, the light bulb idea, these classic ideas of, ah, this inventor comes up with this really good idea. So I think there's one type of innovation instruments that are very focused on supporting that. A good example of these types of instruments is the Horizon Europe program. So this is the EU's research and development program. And most of that funding really goes into supporting ideas in the early stages, proving these ideas in principle. Then the second category is policy instruments that are again specifically focused on innovation, but these are more focused on that type of getting over the valley of death, kind of demonstrating that projects can work in the market, helping them diffuse, helping them to scale up. An example of this is something called the Innovation Fund. This is another EU level fund. And this basically takes money and gives it to companies that demonstrate that they have these projects that have been perhaps proven in principle, but need to be demonstrated in practice. So, and the third type of instruments that we talk about are instruments that aren't necessarily directly aimed at innovation, but that, for instance, give standards or give other constraints that drive innovation directly. 
two examples of this. One is the EU emissions trading system. This is the EU's carbon market, which puts a price on emissions for a lot of industries and for electricity generation. And so basically all these companies need to pay a price to emit carbon. This gives them an indirect incentive to say, well, actually, it's less expensive for us if we innovate and come up with a new way of doing this, either through new technologies or new business models or these types of things, rather than pay this price. So that's an indirect innovation push. Another good example of this is the EU's CO2 car regulations. So these regulations limit the amount of CO2 that can be emitted by new cars. If a car company wants to sell any automobile, any truck, any van in the EU, they have to make that vehicle emit a certain amount of CO2, and that amount continues to decrease moving toward climate neutrality. And within those regulations, there's also now, uh, as Harm was talking about exnovation, there's now a phase-out date for the internal combustion engine of 2035. So this third type of instrument is not really an innovation instrument in the sense that they look only at innovation, but because they're setting these targets, they can help innovation indirectly. So again, we have the innovation instruments that focus on invention, the innovation instruments that focus on demonstration and scaling up, and then the other instruments that aren't necessarily focused only on innovation, but can help push it forward indirectly because of the goals that they set. There's one famous quote of Plato that necessity is the mother of all inventions. And if you exnovate or you're going to phase out a certain technology, then you create that necessity to innovate. Bringing it back to EU policy specifically and some of the details about innovation, I've learned about this idea of an innovation pipeline starting from all the way from R&D to something being market ready. Would you be able to sort of relate those concepts for our listeners? what the instruments are and how they relate to that long chain from initial invention to scale up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think me and Harm have both given examples of this throughout the podcast so far, but I'll try to, to bring it all together and then Harm can add to what I say. So I think we have talked about this pipeline from idea to demonstration to scaling up. And so in the EU, as I've mentioned before, you have the Horizon Europe program, which is focused on the R&D, focused on funding these kind of ideas. And then once you get through the Horizon program, maybe you have your idea ready for a pilot, then you get to something like the Innovation Fund, which is, again, the fund that the EU has to specifically support renewable energy projects, projects in industries like steel and cement to reduce their emissions, demonstrate that they work, and then scale them up. And then after that, you have other programs. Some of that is things like something called InvestEU that helps scale things up and roll out to the market. And throughout this entire process, I think you just have an increasing amount of focus, both at the member state level and regionally and locally, but also at the EU level. And I think as the ambitions get higher, you get more focus on pushing and really supporting the technologies that policymakers and others feel are really key to reach climate neutrality. And I think, as I mentioned in the previous answer, as the EU has pushed its ambition forward, that both creates an indirect incentive for innovation because you're increasing the goals that you set, but also directly it actually leads to more innovation funding and more innovation support. An example of this is that recently the EU moved its 2030 target for greenhouse gas reductions from 40% to 55%, and that's actually a, quite a big increase historically. And so as a result of that, obviously, you've had all the changes to EU law and EU policy to make that happen, to make it possible to get to that 55% by 2030 target. And that's a big indirect driver of innovation right there. For example, the EU carbon price, the price in the emissions trading system has been high for a relatively long time now. 
and that indirectly drives innovation. But also, as a side effect of that, is some of these policy changes, you actually see a lot more money going into, for example, the innovation fund. Not only is there that increased indirect push for innovation from the higher ambition, but also direct increase in policy support through those policy changes as a side effect. Maybe to uh, add one final thing to that, for instance, it's interesting that some funds like the Innovation Fund are largely funded through uh, European ETS systems. The money that's earned through auctioning permits to emit carbon are then used in the innovation program to fund new innovations. It sounds like there's already a number of ongoing actions and initiatives to foster innovation, but I'm still a little bit worried about this gap to be filled by the international community to reach those climate neutrality targets. There's so much promised in these future technologies and innovations that should resolve the climate crisis. But what does the future look like from your perspectives? For example, under the EU's Research and Development Program, There's this new idea of European missions. These are large-scale missions that kind of have measurable, ambitious objectives in a specific subsector that try to bring partners together from universities and public sector and other actors to work on these complex challenges together. For example, two of the focus areas for these European missions are the climate neutral and smart cities and climate adaptation. And so these really try to get people working on these complex challenges, not necessarily on one technology or one business model, have a bunch of things working together in a bit of an ecosystem. The Right Traction Project and most of this podcast is very focused on climate mitigation. That's the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. But of course, innovation is also extremely important for climate adaptation, which is adapting to the climate change has already caused and that it will cause in the future, no matter what we do on emissions today. Just like with mitigation, you need new technologies for climate adaptation. You need more effective ways, for example, to deal with rising sea levels. You need new business models, new ways to adapt to some of the changes climate change will create, for example, in agriculture and other areas. And also you need policy and governance adaptation. I think there's a lot of challenges at the local, national, international level at coordinating these changes, partly because we're not quite sure how bad climate change will get and what the impacts will be exactly. So you need to have this sense of being flexible to the future. And I think that does require a lot of innovation in all three areas that we've talked about, just like it does with climate mitigation. Predicting technological change is just very, very difficult. And it reminds me a bit, you have like the old drawings uh, from, for instance, the 1970s, and then they draw how the future will look like. And then you see, for instance, a mailman on a flying scooter delivering letters. Whereas at the moment, we do not have flying cars, but we do have the internet. So the whole mill service is less necessary. And so I have no idea exactly what will happen, which technologies we will see in 2050. I expect them to be entirely unexpected. And I really hope that we will have solved the carbon emission problem by then. On a policy level, I also hope that we're going to see some new innovations like carbon contracts for differences or more ex-innovation, etc. It will be, for instance, very interesting to see whether hydrogen will take off or other technologies. In that sense, it's a very exciting time we live in. Yeah, so both of you are researchers about innovation, but I would argue that makes you innovators yourselves. I'm interested in hearing from you what interesting open questions are out there for people who are in creative inquiry. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of important and interesting open questions when it comes to research on innovation. We're doing a number of research projects now in the 4i Attraction Project on innovation. For example, at VUB, we did a case study on innovation and offshore wind. Harm did a case study on electric vehicle charging in the Netherlands. And now Harm and I are working on a, a wider study of innovation funding in the EU and how that might look like in future scenarios. I think one of the big challenges that we found, both in the existing literature and what we're working on now, is just how do you study or how do you prove that, for example, a certain policy approach has affected innovation and how? I think that's a big challenge and open question. Obviously, there's lots of work on it in the past, but I think that's one of the key challenges that we have is to kind of tie policy to its impact on innovation, especially when that policy is directly aimed at, at supporting innovation. I guess that the million-dollar question within our research area is how you can really measure technological progress. Often we use something like the number of patents that come from a project in order to get an indication of the degree something is innovative. But that's, of course, a very imperfect measure. So I would really like to get a bit more grip on that, what exactly is technological progress. So both of you focus on the EU context in your work primarily, and certainly that's the case with the 4i Attraction Project. What can you tell us about the broader scheme of things in terms of what the EU is doing and how that relates to what's going on in the rest of the world? Yeah, I think we've already mentioned a couple of those points. I mentioned earlier this idea that innovation is quite a complex process that isn't really constrained by borders. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And again, I also discussed the desirable competition between, for example, the EU and the US on their subsidies for climate-related innovation. That can be great. I think there's three other quick points I would make. Obviously, Europe is quite good, especially in the early invention phase of research and development. So there's Europe's role in the world for having new innovations that are driven both by innovation policy but also by its relatively ambitious climate policy. I think another key role it plays is as markets for technology that might have been invented elsewhere. One of the key roles played in that process of reducing solar costs was actually in Germany and was not necessarily a technological breakthrough, but the fact that Germany had its feed-in tariffs and other policies that really created this huge market for these types of technologies and therefore gave innovators in other countries the incentive to innovate and lower the costs even more. And then I think indirectly, obviously, the EU plays quite an important role in coordinating countries that want higher ambition at the United Nations level, at higher targets globally, at more ambition internationally. And I think just like the policy instruments in the EU can play an indirect role in fostering innovation by making things more stringent and making the targets more ambitious, I think that they can also play a similar role along with other countries around the world in creating a more ambitious context for climate change policy that kind of indirectly fosters innovation, not just in the EU, but around the world, and hopefully create some of these unexpected innovation chains that we've already seen in the past to get us to climate neutrality and beyond. Yeah, entirely agreeing with that. And maybe one important way in the, which the EU can help innovation is by setting standards, for instance, emission standards on cars that also incentivizes firms in other countries to innovate if they want to sell in the European market. What I find to be so striking is the impact that innovation has and can be seen at the international level, 
but also the national level, municipal levels, at the business level. And these changes ultimately impact individuals as well. Policymakers are going to be having to please many different actors in order to stay in power, but also to foster innovation. If you had to summarize your key messages to the policymakers, what are your messages and what should policymakers be focusing on moving forward? There's a number of things that could be said here. I think within the 4i Traction Project, we've tried to define the hallmarks of transformative climate policy. For example, one of those is thinking back from the end for policymakers to say, where do we want to be in 2050 or even 2070, 2100, and how do we get where we're going specifically for innovation? What policy support needs to be increased? Which technologies need to be supported? And potentially, which technologies need to be both not supported, but also phased out as we go forward. Another thing that we talk about is getting away from undesirable path dependencies. Obviously, path dependencies are this idea that you have infrastructure, you have institutions that kind of lock you into a certain path. And some of those paths are very high carbon paths. So for example, you have the infrastructure for petrol and cars that is quite locks you into a certain path. So there's this idea that you both need to break away from those paths, those undesirable lock-ins, but also you want to create desirable lock-ins. You want to lock into the paths that you want to be going on toward 2050 and beyond. You want to lock into things like electric vehicles. You want to lock into things like renewable energy and create these new and desirable paths going forward. I think we really need to scale up the policy approach to innovation in line with the increased ambition we have for climate mitigation and for climate adaptation. I totally agree. I have very little to add to that, just maybe one thought that thinking back from the end is indeed important. And one way we could also fill that in is by making a plan when we want to exnovate which technologies. There's, of course, some examples already. For instance, stop selling combustion engine cars in 2035. But I would personally like to see much more of such planning being done. I think that will uh, reduce insecurity for not only investors and uh, innovators, but also for people that they know what's going to happen. And of course, that's not going to be a very nice message to sell, but I think it's a very important one. In the end, I guess we are having to choose between two evils and we can better choose the lesser evil. So we need to admit less carbon in order to mitigate climate change. And if we do not do that, then climate will suffer. And because of that, we as well. So if any politicians or policymakers are listening, thinking back to N is going to be key in not only innovating, but exnovating for a climate neutral future. For more information on that concept, be sure to check out our first episode in which Benjamin Gölach and Anushka Hilke break down the concept of thinking back to N step by step and why it is so important to do so. Well, Brendan and Harm, thank you so much for joining us today, taking the time to share your insights about innovation and its role in transformative climate policy. We have future discussions coming up with other researchers who will be helping us with understanding investments, infrastructure, and integration, respectively. But you've been our first ones to share details about innovation. We're very glad you did. Thanks so much. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, I'm also looking forward to the other podcasts. I'm definitely going to listen. Thanks. Thank you both. That was a great discussion we had with Brendan and Harm on climate innovation. Aaron, what are your key takeaways? One thing I thought was really interesting is that 
innovation is more than the type of innovation we typically think of, just technological innovation, but is also involves business model innovation and policy and governance innovation as well. So there's a very broad frame that we had in our discussion today and a lot of room for policymakers to have a, an active role to play in fostering innovation across all these various types. Absolutely. And policy support really is needed at all the stages from the beginning ideas taking place and giving them space to flourish, but also to prevent this valley of death, that gap between demonstration and implementation in the real world. So scaling up and the indirect support as well with benchmarking requirements, it's all really interesting of, of how that comes together. And not only of the support that's needed, but the global process where support is aided and where this process moves along. I think Brendan put it in a really nice way of innovation is a global process. And that really struck me. One, one other thing that was very interesting too was this, well, the word itself is interesting, exnovation. But the concept also, this idea of you, you need to actively leave old ways of doing things behind as part of moving towards new things. And I guess Harm said it well when he brought up the well-known quote that necessity is the mother of invention. And seeing that exnovation as something that actually creates that necessity was new to me as a way of seeing it. Absolutely. I think it's really remarkable how we heard about how innovation and exnovation really complement each other and help us move towards progress. I also liked how Harm talked about the magic of innovation of not only happy coincidences, but helping the magic along in the different ways that governments can do so. And it's not only coordination and cooperation, but Brendan brought up competition. And I think all this magic of innovation does leave us on a very hopeful and optimistic look for the future. Yeah. And we've really seen results too. The statistic that Brendan mentioned with the 15-fold decrease in costs for solar panels in just 10 years from 2008 to 2018, you know, that is a result of innovation and points to this ever-changing context for innovation going forward. The recipe for creating the magic is constantly and steadily shifting as we move towards that net zero target of 2050. Thanks for listening. Our next conversation will be on the topic of infrastructure and its role within the EU's transition. So keep an eye out for our next episode and be sure to subscribe to Climate On Air, discussing the future of EU climate policy. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. This podcast is part of the 4i Traction Project, financed by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program. For more information, check out our website, www.4i-traction.eu.